Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Lloyd. Uh, I just wanted to express my admiration and appreciation of, I mean, a number of the books that you've put out over the last few decades, but the work in progress, The Origins of War and Child Abuse, is a spectacularly mind-expanding and almost viscerally uh, depressing at times book. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could uh, give the listeners a little bit of a teaser. I've talked about the book on the show before, but for people who were new to this conversation, if you could give the basic thesis of the book, which is sort of contained in the title, but needs to be fleshed out I think, sure. a little bit more to, to help people to understand where you're coming from. Sure can. It's a very simple thesis. Uh, it's that uh, uh, when you're a child and you're uh, I'm a little child, I'm not talking about uh, 10 years old, I'm saying uh, starting with your mother particularly, and uh, uh, one doesn't talk about mothers when you're talking about wars, but uh, of course uh, when you go to war you're, uh, you're uh, uh, always show the motherland who's the one that you're going to war for. But uh, the notion is that uh, when you're a little kid and uh, and you're uh, told that you're uh, impotent and a baby and uh, and so on, uh, that you uh, uh, resent that and you store it in a part of your brain in the fear center in the right side of your amygdala uh, that uh, is dissociated and uh, you can't access it later on, uh, but you do act it out very often. Uh, and uh, the, all of these acting outs is what the book is about. I go war after war after war since antiquity into Christian wars and early nationalist wars and, uh, and the current wars and show that uh, you're uh, uh, going to save the motherland and, and, uh, and be the power behind your mother and uh, represent her. Uh, and the person that you're torturing and killing uh, is essentially your own bad self. That uh, that uh, nasty baby who who uh, dis disappointed your mother or or, or uh, threw something at her or wouldn't eat your food, and when you don't eat your food, what does your mother say to you? I'm going to stuff it down your throat. And when you go to war, why do you find that the enemy can't, has to be uh, uh, militarily engaged because they're trying to stuff things down our throat? And I went back and I looked at every single war and every single leader, and I found evidence in the nation that the things that they were going to war about was not about economic stuff, was not about territory, was not about anything that's realistic, that's called realism, but rather that they started each one of these wars saying out in the open that it was because they needed to be more masculine, to be tougher, to be a a uh, 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 somebody that uh, that is uh, uh, respected, uh, and uh, will show them our respect. And I went down every single one of them. I remember one of the earlier uh, pieces I wrote uh, was on uh, why did the Nazis kill Jews? You know, the Jews were perfectly good Germans. There was no reason to do so, and they weren't born as Nazi baby as babies uh, hating Jews. Uh, so I looked and I found that, uh, gee, isn't that interesting? They said they were. What they said was that they had to kill the Jews because they were in fact lice who were poisoning the bloodstream of Germany. And I said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, what is that? And I went back to the early childhood. When they were born, the German babies at that time were all wrapped up tightly in swaddling clothes and covered with lice. And the parents used to say to you, say to them, oh, you filthy lice, shit-covered baby, you don't, you don't you mean anything to me. 
And then when they grew up, they uh, uh, found that, uh, that the Jews were, in fact, lice. And they called him that, and uh, they uh, they uh, killed him in the uh, in the uh, uh, showers of the concentration camps to clean him out, right, and clean out all that poisonous lice that uh, that they were subjected to as a baby. And I went down to each one of the leaders, particularly the American leaders, you know, uh, 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 LBJ. You remember started the Vietnam War uh, by. Uh, by uh, faking uh, an incident in the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, saying, and he says, you know, <laughs> that that incident was totally meaningless, actually. He says they were actually shooting at fish uh, later on, he said. Uh, but uh, I had to do it to show, to show, uh, to start, I had to start the Vietnam War to show that my penis was bigger than Ho Chi Minh's penis. And I said, what? He actually said that? This and, isn't like a, a Freudian reinterpretation of his language. It wasn't. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's the actual language. words. It was reported by all the people, and he used to show off his penis regularly in meetings as president and say, I got a bigger one than anybody, and uh, used to hold parties, uh, naked parties in the, in the uh, White House uh, pool, showing off his penis and so on, and everybody said, gee, you know, it's awfully hard to work for LBJ because he's always showing us his penis and showing how big it is, and so on. And so I went down to each one of the presidents, starting, the, let's, say, let's say, JFK. Sorry, can we know? just go back to LBJ? I don't want to necessarily dwell sure. on the penis thing, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, we can, I think, safely assume that a man who needs to reinforce his masculinity to that degree must have been humiliated, at least must have felt that his masculinity was humiliated as a child. Did you find yes, any, of that in, any descriptions of his childhood? Sure, his mother used to beat him uh, regularly and uh, used to walk around, uh, he said, pretending that I was dead. <laughs> Pay no attention to me because I was dead. And uh, uh, so each one of these presidents, you can go back to their childhood, which I did. It's, it's, it's a considerable amount of research, you know, because I've written uh, uh, probably uh, uh, 200,000 footnotes to back up the stuff that I've got. And uh, JFK, too. His mother used to beat him with uh, wire coat hangers. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, when he got to the, uh, to the White House, he used to, he used to have White, White House naked pools, too. And uh, all of these presidents that had um, prostitutes for themselves before presidency and during their presidency uh, all had to show that they were uh, that they really were men. And uh, and of course this is this is the standard upbringing of the boy. The boy doesn't get what the girl gets. The girl gets uh, 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 has to appreciate the mother, but she doesn't uh, have to disappear from the mother's presence but when a boy uh, in any of the, these earlier societies and today for that matter for most part of uh, boys certainly it was true of me and my family uh, when a boy was uh, three or four years old he had to become a man he had to separate from his mother and not be a what a sissy a girl he can't be a girl he can't be impotent he can't he's he's got to be a, a big person uh, and uh, I had just I just finished listening to television, and uh, we're we're about to go to war now. Do you know that? I did this not morning. know that. 
Yes, this morning the North Koreans uh, shot some people over on some stupid island in uh, South Korea, and uh, off of Incheon. And, oh yeah, uh, the United sending some ships to the uh, to and the, the neighborhood. Yeah, right? yeah, and the United States is is sending its military forces. It's got a, an aircraft carrier that's heading over there and is about to start a goddamn war. And uh, uh, you ask yourself why, and uh, you look at the at the real stuff. It's not about anything. Uh, uh, it's about getting in trouble with China, uh, who, who, by the way, are going to stop lending us our trillions of dollars if we if we push them like that, uh, and so on. And uh, uh, then you look at the words that they use to humiliate these people. Uh, uh, George Bush the second, I remember, used to call Kim Il Jong, uh, Kim Jong Il, uh, a pygmy. Now that's not because he was short. He was called a pygmy, meaning he's a baby. He's helpless, and we're more powerful. So that's what you do to show off that you're a uh, that you're a powerful nation. And the United States, unfortunately, is 25th out of the 27 major democratic nations in child rearing, in in, in decent child rearing, and in uh, in uh, amount of uh, problems children have later on, and so on, and in the amount of of uh, prisons that we have and so on. And so the United States is the biggest war maker, or the biggest uh, 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 person uh, in the world, has half the, uh, uh, the amount of money going into our uh, military, uh, half of the entire world's amount. And uh, we're trying to show that we're potent, we're masculine, we're men, not babies. So if I understand it correctly, the... And again, you're, you're the expert, so correct me where I'm wrong. But the uh, the, uh, the 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 male, uh, the boy, as a child, uh, and as particularly as a very young child, is uh, is humiliated or attacked or beaten by usually a maternal figure, uh, who is attacking his sort of bad self. And then he grows up, and he has he ha- he hasn't dealt with this trauma. Uh, the trauma remains as an altar within his unconscious. And then he has to find, he has to sort of reenact that abuse. So he has to project his bad self onto somebody else or some other group or some other country and then attack them in the way that he was attacked. And you know how early that occurs? Boys and girls form groups when they're three years old that are very similar. They all kind of uh, get together and they have little uh, uh, groups of uh, eight or ten and so on. By the time they're four or five years old, boys are all playing war. Girls never play war. Do you know, and I just wanted to reinforce what you were saying, and I think one of the reasons that I found your work so compelling to begin with was uh, my, I sort of have a uh, a split family as far as war lines go, that my uh, my mother's side is German and my father's side was British and Irish and fought on opposite sides during the Second World War. When I would have, even as a little kid, I remember this being six or seven years old, my cousins from Germany would come to play and they were not allowed to play war. They weren't allowed to play with guns. And so the Germans had understood that there was something about the parenting that had occurred prior to the First and Second World Wars and had reversed that without any particular statement. It had just happened almost of a spontaneous nature that they said, listen, we have to stop teaching our children that war is a glorious and fun and enjoyable game. And I just remember that because, of course, the British kids we were all war mad because there was such pride coming out of the Second World War. And uh, I just found it a very different sort of situation that uh, my German cousins weren't allowed to play war. And we had some great conversations about that even when we were a little kid. I think it seemed to happen in Germany after the Second World War. What happened after the Second World War proves my thesis. 
<clears throat> I was over in Austria, and I walked around Vienna and and even parts of Germany and saw that the, that uh, the, the parents were looking at the children and uh, and uh, playing with them and giggling with them and teasing them and in the streets. Okay, I counted the number, virtually ninety uh, percent. I had just come from London, and not a one of the parents looked at or played with their children. They were all well-disciplined. And you can see the actual rate of heading children go down in 1965 in, let's start with, with, uh, with Austria because it was uh, you know, essentially uh, in charge of more concentration camps than Germany was. And uh, they passed a law saying you cannot hit your child, period. That's it. All the European Union, there's now 30 nations around that have passed this law. Now, if you hit your child, you don't, you don't go get thrown in jail, but they send someone out and show you how to discipline your child or how to make sure he doesn't run out into the street, uh, uh, even though you don't hit them. And uh, uh, Tony Blair the other day said on television, I, I hit my one-year-old baby, of course, because he couldn't talk, because, I, uh, you know, how else will he be disciplined? <laughs> you know, and I just wanted to interrupt because it, it is an astounding thing and, and people in the future will look back and, and their jaws will drop at what we, in such a blasé way, accepted uh, in, in parenting. Imagine if he'd said, well, I, I beat my wife because she didn't agree with me. I mean, it would be the yeah. end of his career as a civilized human being. And yet a child who did not choose to enter into a relationship with a parent, you can talk about beating a child and nobody either cares or they approve of it. Whereas, of course, if you talk about beating an adult who has far more options, far more freedom and has chosen to be there, everybody's horrified. It really is astounding. Uh, the degree to which we can ignore that kind of criminal. Furthermore, one of the themes of my of my latest book is that uh, if you start treating uh, uh, females, girls, and and women better, then they are more able to be efficient uh, mothers and not beat their children and so on. So the second thing that they passed in 1965 in uh, in Austria and Germany and and now is further around uh, is the law that says every single baby that is born, the mother gets three solid years from the government, not from their company, but from the government of freedom that they, that they get pay, paid with whatever they were paid before. So you, the mother doesn't have to. Now, in America, 77% of the babies who are born, the mothers have to go out and work. We don't have a law that I think some of the places give 10 weeks or something, but we don't have a law saying that the babies in the first three years of their lives should really be taken care of, do we? And so each one of these, of these uh, uh, you know, as, as nations go to war, you can see the reasons that they give. Uh, prior to World War One, and I, in my latest piece, I have a, a whole description of World War One. Before World War One, girls started going out to school more. Uh, they started to get jobs more. They started to drive cars and so on. And all the boys, all the men said, "We got to go to war to show we're tough, because otherwise the women are going to take it over over the world." Returning <laughs> them to a state when they were dependent upon their mothers and feared that kind of humiliation. Is that right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Right, and and I think it's uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, this this chapter on World War One because it is something that remains inexplicable historically. I mean, I have a graduate degree in history and never found a convincing explanation for the First World War because uh, it was such a senseless uh, genocide. Dumbest war you ever had, yeah. And you've talked a lot about, and I really wanted to to probe this in more detail. This question of growth anxiety, I think, is very important. You say that 
that democratic nations have never gone to war in a depression. It's always during a time of expansion of economic returns or social liberties that there's a kind of growth anxiety that causes the war, which as far as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, the war is fundamentally from the elder generation to the younger generation. The foreigners, in a sense, are just a way, uh, it's an excuse right. to attack and punish the younger generation for taking the freedoms that would have caused, uh, in a sense, murderousness on the part of the elder generation's parents. Is that a fair summation? Or that, that, that certainly is, and, and our current situation, uh, which uh, uh, has produced the, uh, the uh, Republican uh, uh, Tea Party uh, revolution, uh, is a proof of the thing. What is it that they're opposed to? They're opposed to progress aren't they? They're essentially all reactionaries. They're all saying, oh gosh, we can't have, uh, we can't have uh, a, a, a motherland. <laughs> we can't have a nanny Washington, right? Isn't that what it's called, the nanny government? Right, they, they oppose uh, uh, equal rights for homosexuals and other things that would be progressive and uh, not, uh, they, they look very much back towards the American Revolution as though everything was great for women and children and blacks and uh, Native Americans back in those days. Uh, they have a very filtered view of history that I think is completely distorted. But they, yeah, they're, they're trying to build the future by looking back at the past, and, and they generally oppose the kind of egalitarianism that comes with more equal rights for all. Yeah, equality is very threatening, aren't, isn't it, really? Uh, what they, they're saying uh, we can't just all uh, get a small tax uh, relief uh, for, from the uh, what they're trying to do at the end of this uh, of this uh, session in Congress. Uh, we've got to let the the big guys get more. They get the trillions of dollars, and uh, just you and I, we're just uh, we're just kids. <laughs> we don't deserve it, do we? <laughs> It is uh, it is interesting, and I'm, I'm, I've done some uh, research and had some friends help me with some research on this, because I think it's very hard to understand the degree to which, when people are talking about the largest and most abstract social institutions like the church, like the state, and like the nation, in my view, they're almost always talking about their own families, but they're entirely unconscious of that. I mean, if you just look at the metaphors that surround the state, as you say, the motherland, the fatherland, we have the founding fathers. Uh, we have the first lady, and the first lady we all meet, of course, is generally uh, our mother. There, there are so many ways. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security—it's the home, uh, it's the home country, it's 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 the home uh, nation—and I think that it's a not exactly a conscious, but it's a very powerful way of hooking into family uh, mythologies and family histories, which we all have so deeply embedded within us. Exactly. And I find so. that when people mm -hmm. are talking about the nation, if you actually peel it back, they're almost always talking about their own families, it's and that's why the there family. are such divergent yeah. views of the same thing. That's essentially what it is, and there's some very good studies of it, which the academics very often overlook, uh, that show that the people who killed Jews most and were most happy with it uh, had the worst child-rearing. And uh, the people who were uh, who were saving Jews, where well, there were some of them, uh, uh, had the uh, the most advanced child rearing in Germany at that particular time. So pro progressives and reactionaries are two different parts of the of the uh, nation uh, as as they go to war or as they or as they take excessive risks and put themselves into uh, into depressions like the one that we just started and in, in, in the one in the thirties. Uh, that uh, that uh, the reactionaries just are against freedoms for people and are uh, for uh, uh, siding with the powerful punishing parent. Right, right. So the people, uh, the liberties which they themselves wanted to take or tried to take as children were violently opposed by their own parents. And so they, uh, they viewed those liberties as 
provoking attack on the part of the parents. And therefore, when as adults, they see other people taking those liberties, it provokes that same fight or flight response. Uh, and the anxiety management is to control the liberties of others in order to avoid the activation of the punishing parent altar. Is that uh, fairly close? Exactly. And, uh, and psychohistory started with a guy called Eric Frum, who wrote some books uh, about freedom anxiety, anxiety over freedom. And he says, you know, when people are, uh, are put into, into therapy, you've got to mainly address their fear of being healthy of being free, of being uh, assertive and, and, uh, and uh, uh, in charge of uh, themselves and of being proud of themselves. For the most part, people, uh, people who are, uh, uh, come into uh, psychoanalysis, and boy, I've had 20 years of it. I remember I went back to my childhood in, in uh, Detroit, Michigan, and they, my father used to tell me to eat the, to eat the, the uh, fat off the, off the side of the uh, steak that he wanted the center part of. Uh, now that's called, uh, you know, stuffing it down, you know? You, you gotta eat it. Right, right. Well, I think that it is disheartening, uh, I think, the degree to which there is such a, a still an enormous amount of resistance. I mean, I mean, if you go back 2,500 years, know thyself is the basic commandment of Socrates, and, and uh, really, I think, in-depth psychology or self-analysis has been around you could say for you know 120 130 140 oh, sure. years it really does seem to be taking quite some time to take root and of course it's taking root in particular areas of society and provoking a retrogressive reaction from the other areas of society and i think that is a civil war that you talk about the different psychoclasses i was wondering if you could go into that uh, in a little bit more detail because we like to think of the nation as one thing but it really is in a sense all the way from stone age to the future in terms of parenting practices which creates quite a lot of schisms within society yeah you got to remember for instance in uh, in apocalyptic uh, uh, christian and and jewish uh, um, um, homes today they expect uh, the, the world to end tomorrow don't, don't they they expect uh, either christ to come back or somebody else to come back uh, and of course the islams uh, in uh, in various nations uh, especially Iran, uh, look forward to that and have, tell the terrorists to, to produce the, the final imam that then destroys the world so that they can go up to heaven and fuse with God, fuse with Allah. And uh, 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 you go back into Christianity, and what, what's, what's astonishing to me since I went through Columbia University, and and finally when I got out, I decided I didn't want to continue at, at the universities because uh, uh, after my doctorate, because uh, uh, every word that I wrote would be uh, a threat to my children's uh, feed for next food, <laughs> because uh, you know the head of Columbia University's political science department I was in was uh, Kissinger and Brzezinski and other people who loved wars, and uh, you can't write about these things, but you write about about Christianity, for instance, and you find <laughs> I make a, a good case in my book, uh, in my Christian chapter, for the fact that virtually no Christian parents brought up their own kids. They believed that Eve gave her sinfulness, right, through her menstrual fluid into the mother's breast milk. So you wouldn't want the baby to have the, the, the mother's breast milk, would you? Because that's poisonous, right? And, uh, and they should go right to hell to, if, they, if they become sinful. So all of the babies were given away to wet nurses in neighboring villages or, or uh, uh, hell, I got a, a statistic in, in, uh, in uh, Paris that 90% of the mothers didn't 
feed their own babies in Paris in 1905 at a big census that they did, very good one. And they sent them out to the Altisters. They, did, they didn't follow them. They didn't, and when they got them back three or four years later, uh, they'd say, oh, I forgot I had that one. <laughs> What's his name? <laughs> and so the notion that mothers bring up their children, particularly in Christian, uh, early Christian times, it, it didn't really change until 17th, 18th centuries, um, a bit, and, and uh, that... Uh, uh, the notion that mothers and fathers bring up their and fathers, of course, even today, rarely have have about three hours a week in America with their children. They rarely see them. Uh, the, the, the fathers like myself and probably yourself, uh, who are fifty-fifty fathers and share, uh, you know, even bottle feeding and all kinds of other taking around and learning and so on, are very rare. Uh, and uh, so uh, fathers uh, only become. Uh, uh, parents uh, late in history, and same same thing uh, essentially that uh, that uh, mothers. But you give them, you give girls a little bit of respect, and you give mothers a little bit of help, and you give uh, a little bit of uh, empathy uh, for families in uh, in your um, uh, national uh, uh, laws that you pass. Uh, and uh, things change. Uh, 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 Twenty years ago, uh, America had a very good uh, uh, study of how many kids were being hit and, and, uh, and otherwise badly disciplined, and, uh, and it was about 90%. Uh, now it's around 65%. That's pretty good. That's at least the start. And that's what produced, if you will, uh, uh, Obama. Obama's mother was a very sweet woman, wasn't she? How about McCain, the reactionary part of the of the uh, of the uh, last election? McCain used to be hit so badly that he would hold his breath as a little boy and pass out. So his parents said, "We're going to cure you of that." And the next time you do that, wait till you see what happens. So he did it, and he passed out, and they filled up the bathtub with ice water, including the ice, and threw him in unconscious. That cured him, and that, of course, was the basis of his going to uh, to uh, Vietnam and uh, and uh, being such a good prisoner and still being in charge of uh, still being for military action and so on. Uh, you can trace every single one of these kinds of more reactionary and more progressive uh, leaders uh, and periods uh, throughout history. It's not hard to do. George W. Bush, uh, what was his uh, childhood like? Because, of course, he started these two terrifically destructive uh, and ugly wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I remember when, when he was first elected. No, it was when he was uh, re-elected. I'm not sure which one. Uh, I went downtown, and there were a million of us on the street in New York City uh, complaining that George Bush was going to be the uh, uh, going to try to be president. And I came home, and I watched CNN, and here was George Bush talking to the guy, and they asked him, "What makes you such a tough guy, and so militarily strong, and so on?" And, and he said, he turned around and he pointed to the audience, and he said, "See that white-haired lady over there?" She used to beat me up all the time. She was the decider. Now I'm the decider. That's so what he said. the political ambition is driven by the early humiliation and dominance from the mom. Right, right. And when he went to war in Iraq, what are the exact words he said for the reason he did it? God told me to do it. Well, 
we know God wears a dress, doesn't he? <laughs> now, that's something I've had a little trouble following in the psychohistory um, uh, research. I was wondering if you could uh, dip into that idea that uh, God is, I mean, he's so often portrayed as masculine with sort of a feminine sub-deity, so to speak, like the Virgin Mary. Uh, but the uh, psychohistory argument, if I understand it right, is that God is essentially feminine and is is the mother. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the evidence for that. Yeah, well, it's it's a blending of the two. Obviously, if you're my, my mother didn't beat me, but she turned me over to my father, who who used the uh, used a razor strap, uh, and uh, and so I was more more focused on uh, on uh, the paternal side of the thing. But nevertheless, as I say, she was and she agreed with my father that I should be locked up at three years old in the basement in the uh, house that we had uh, in the coal cellar if I was bad for the night. And I remember worrying that the coal would all come down on my head. And uh, uh, at that point, I had to run away from home and hide for a couple of days. They were worried where I was. Uh, three? Three years old? Come on, give me a break. Uh, the, uh, the earlier, the better. The, the earlier, the more influence it has. Let's say it that way. And uh, if the mother is essentially the only one that's around, and uh, if women are the, sometimes it's grandmother, you know, in America, uh, if you're, if you're uh, poor, uh, you've got to hand your kid over to, a, to, uh, to, to your mother in order to take care of them because you're out there working, uh, as, as virtually all of them are. Uh, so uh, the question of whether, I, uh, let's say it a different way around. Uh, I have about 25 books on my shelf right here in front of me here. Uh, that are all pictures of uh, Mother Mary and Jesus as a baby. Uh, until the 17th century, Mother Mary never, ever, in the pictures, the drawings they do, the paintings, the, the, uh, the uh, 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 statues that are in the churches and so on, the mother never looks at Jesus, never looks at him, never smiles at him, never tickles them, never does anything that's, uh, that's human. Instead, baby Jesus turns around sometimes and wipes the tear from Mary's eye. <laughs> that's your job. So that is, that is the, the salvation fantasy that a lot of people still have, yep. that the child is going to save them, that the child is going to enrich their lives, that the child is going to give love to them, that is going to fill up the emptiness within them. And when the child, of course, doesn't do that, as children aren't ever going to do, uh, they take it out on the child almost in an act of, of rage or, or uh, rejection. Yep, yep. Yes, indeed. Well, if we have, uh, if we have uh, a few more uh, periods, like, uh, as I say, early Obama's uh, uh, period, where the young people go out, after all, the new generation is, that's the persons that, uh, that uh, hired the guy, right, that voted for him. And what we're worried about right now is that the, the election that just took place, the young people sort of gave up and they, uh, they pooped out, and, uh, and uh, we've got virtually all the reactionaries up there in Washington. Uh, and uh, so we'll see. We've got, thank goodness, we've at least got Obama for another couple of years, because otherwise uh, we'd, have, we'd have endless wars like we're apparently trying to start in Korea right now. You know, I fought over in, in Korea, and uh, I was in 8th Army headquarters at Seoul uh, at, the, uh, at the parallel, uh, and I was in uh, Maxwell Taylor, who's, uh, who's uh, uh, interested only in his own uh, superiority, uh, in his uh, play, uh, 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 
Seoul headquarters of Eighth Army, and uh, uh, I was told by my the guy who put me in there because I was just a secretary that when I played tennis with Maxwell Taylor, I better lose because he can't stand losing. Well, that's what the Korean War was about. We couldn't stand losing. And uh, we started uh, the, uh, Korea, the Korean War uh, essentially by uh, trying to invade the North 23 times. You don't get, you don't use, usually learn that in a in a history course, but uh, but the South tried pushed toward the North so often, and then MacArthur, of course, took over and decided that this is a good time to invade China and uh, uh, threatened China with dropping a nuclear bomb on them. I don't know if you know that. And finally, and finally, he had to be fired because it was just too much. Uh, but we're in the same position now. Essentially, uh, North Korea is the one that's the uh, that's the irritator. Uh, but we're going to China. We're telling them they have to stop the the uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapon buildup uh, material, uh, the enrichment material, from going into uh, into North Korea. Well, very shortly, the Chinese are going to stop lending us our trillions of dollars, aren't they? <laughs> if they don't like the way we talk to them, if we if we call them a pygmy <laughs> and embarrass them and humiliate them. Right. But, uh, now, I would also like, the, in the bigger picture of things, I think that there's a lot to be encouraged about in the idea of more benevolent and peaceful child raising. As you say, the statistics of uh, very young children being hit have dropped from over 90% to uh, about uh, two-thirds. But in some ways, it almost feels like there have been a number of steps backwards. Uh, for instance, in the post-war period, uh, usually one parent could stay home, and, and there was often at least one parent home. And right. it was not this passing up the buck. I mean, I'm a stay-at-home dad, and I see this with my daughter when I take her out, that there's uh, grandmothers who have older styles of child raising and less ability to get down and mix it up and play with the kids just simply because of physical limitations. Right. So it feels like with the herding of moms into the workforce, particularly in the United States and in England, that there's been a step backwards insofar as the children have lost the pair bonding with, with a, at least one parent and are now in these state-run or state-managed institutions, which I think causes them to bond with the state, which I actually don't think is particularly a good idea to fuse in a sense with the nation. And they're missing out on that peaceful, quiet, relaxed interaction that occurs with one parent at home. So while the amount of uh, physical attacks is, is down, it feels like there's been a big step backwards in terms of you know tax policies and other social problems, uh, and to some degree, uh, a narrow-minded view of feminism that, that work is to be uh, the, the, the be-all and end-all, that there's a step backwards in terms of, of parenting. Is that, uh, is that your view as well, or do you think it's... Uh, it's uh, it is, and I, and I prove my thesis by the fact that the, that the European Union nations that are giving, a, giving each mother for each child three solid years' worth of state help so they can stay home and take care of their babies has changed the European Union. Look, the European Union, as you know, has just recently gone through, particularly in, uh, in uh, um, uh, Ireland and, uh, and uh, uh, Italy and a couple of Spain and so on, uh, a terrible, uh, upsetting uh, uh, depression uh, that was essentially like the one that, uh, that preceded the, uh, the Second World War and that, uh, that Hitler came to power in. Do you see any Hitler coming into power? Where Has, has Austria and Germany attacked uh, Poland? In the last year, no, there's peace, and if the reason that there's peace is because uh, forty or fifty years ago, 
uh, they gave mothers uh, some more time, and they gave mothers some help, and they they have preschool for uh, free for preschool for children. They have all kinds of help for bringing up a child. And indeed, the statistics show that there's practically nobody hits their kids anymore. It started. So as a result, it, there's less trauma buried in the amygdala, which then exactly. doesn't. So then there's nothing to charge out and attack because there's no self-management of early trauma that's unconscious to to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, it started in, in the northern nations in Sweden and Switzerland and so on, and it uh, it uh, moved down into the rest of the European nation, uh, European Union, and uh, the peaceful nations are ones that uh, that very simply give some help to the mothers to bring up their children and give them a little time, a little uh, a little extra uh, visits. Uh, they, they actually have visiting people. They don't they don't, as I say, put you in jail for doing the wrong thing, but they they send people out from the from the uh, 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 center of Austria, and and uh, and visit you and show you how you can bring up your kids a little bit better. And there certainly does seem to be in the EU a growing awareness uh, of the reality that decriminalizing drug use and rather giving people treatment rather than jail time is the way to deal with it because they're just self-medicating early trauma for the most part. And criminal uh, po Portugal has even decriminalized drugs uh, to to a huge extent and has had an enormous amount of benefit from that. And that, of course, is, is still uh, decades away in the U.S. Exactly. One of my psychohistorians, Abby Stein, uh, teaches uh, uh, at the uh, John Jay uh, uh, College of Criminal Justice right nearby here in, my, in, Man in uh, Manhattan. And uh, she teaches that every single solitary criminal, you can go back and find the trauma that, was, that put them there and that you can help them uh, get out of there. Listen to this. There's a guy who um, uh, was in charge, uh, a psychiatrist in charge of a, uh, of a, of a, uh, of a uh, jail, a uh, big jail, that had something like 70 or 80 percent recidivism, meaning that they come back after they get out uh, rate. Uh, and he said, you know, all those people would need is some, some uh, respect. They need respect. And so I'm going to take over this. If you would give me uh, the money to do so, I'm going to take over this jail, and I'm going to turn it into a, uh, a school, a university. I'm going to teach each one of these people how to read better, how to get more respect, how to uh, find a job and get respect out of their lives. And uh, I'm going to uh, uh, turn, uh, reduce the recidivism rate. Do you know what the rate was three years after he put his plan into operation? Zero. Every single one of them was non-violent uh, and, and, and didn't and obeyed the, the laws because they got some respect in their lives. And uh, uh, this, uh, as I say, Abby Stein, Professor Stein, uh, uh, writes for my journal of psychohistory, uh, which if anybody wants to see a copy of, I'll send you a free copy uh, with, uh, if you just uh, uh, send to the uh, address that's on your uh, website. Yeah, I will put a link uh, on the video and audio, and I'll make sure that people have the, the information. It has always struck me that a punitive state that is selling, quote, protection from enemies uh, has a vested interest in creating those enemies. And I think that uh, not protecting children uh, in further traumatizing criminals rather than trying to give them the mental health help that they need, they're keeping a population frightened of their fellow, their fellow citizens, in a sense, rather than, I think, what they should be frightened of, which is the sort of military-industrial complex. And so it, it's always struck me that the way that the government deals with, uh, with criminality 
is just so counterproductive to everything except its own interests in continuing to frighten its population and have them cling to the state for protection from enemies that the state is in fact creating and promoting. And I think that's a real tragedy and a cycle that is very hard for people to see it break out of. You're absolutely right. And furthermore, uh, of the 300 nations or so that have signed the Children's Rights Agreement around the world, uh, there are only two major nations, only two. Samoa and America, who refused to sign the rights uh, of children and say that they're going to work toward uh, giving children more rights. Well, I mean, I think that has a lot. It's very hard to understand America if you look at it in the company of first world nations. If you look at it in the company of third world nations, these statistics kind of pop into focus in terms of religiosity and superstition and, and belief in astrology oh, yeah. and magic and sure. uh, the child mortality statistics and illness statistics and all of that. Uh, it, is, it has no place in the first world uh, nations. It really is, has to be looked at as a third world country. And uh, that makes it, that sort of makes it make sense. Uh, and I think you're right. It is tragic the degree to which children uh, receive just terrible, terrible education. And I think America would have to give up uh, its religiosity, as so many of the European nations have done. Whereas I think rates of atheism in the northern countries, or at least non-religiosity, are 70, 80 percent or more. America would have to give up the indoctrination of its children in religiosity, of course, which is terrifying to most children, that there's a, a hell and punishment and judgment yeah. and, and lakes of fire and blood and, and even seeing, uh, you, you would never have in a children's movie a guy getting nailed to a cross with exploding <laughs> everywhere, but you can show that to children in a book and you can show it to them in church and somehow that's considered okay. Yep. America would have to take a step back from this sort of terrifying children with, with sort of religious horror uh, in order to, to have that. Uh, become less traumatic and, and to join and the I, country, civilized nation. I'm nations. puzzled by the fact that one-third right now of America is, is the fundamentalist uh, uh, Protestant, uh, Catholic, and, uh, and Jewish uh, churches, you know, that are expecting uh, some uh, savior to come back during their lifetime. I mean, that wasn't true back in, uh, in uh, when America started. Uh, we had essentially all the people who... Uh, who uh, uh, disappeared from England uh, uh, that uh, said that that was the craziest thing they ever saw. You know, they weren't, they weren't going to go along with the Catholic stuff that they had and the kings and stuff like that. Uh, they were going to be independent, and they were going to come here and, uh, and uh, establish their own farms and be... Uh, be uh, uh, saved by themselves. <laughs> and I mean, a good chunk of the founding fathers had nothing to do with Christianity. They were atheists or agnostic or deists. And they indeed were. And now it's been completely hijacked that somehow it is a Christian nation. I mean, it was specifically <laughs> aimed to not be a religious nation, but that uh, uh, that primitive style of um, uh, of parenting. I, I interviewed, I'll send you a link to this if you like, I interviewed Dr. John Omaha, who says that you can't understand America without understanding the degree to which it collectively as a nation is suffering from PTSD in its refusal to admit its own crimes, such as the genocide against the Native Americans, uh, yep. uh, the, the moral effects of slavery and of uh, militarism and uh, imperialism around the world. Yep. Because it continues to ignore all of these traumas collectively, it continues to reproduce them. And he sort of has a fascinating analysis of the American character from a PTSD standpoint. Yes, and the people who came to the northeastern part of America were the more progressive parts, came over in full families and decided their family should be independent and so on of the, uh, of the British nation. But the people who came to the south were not 
those kinds of people. They were later born uh, boys that didn't get any um, any money from their parents, or they were servants, or they were pirates, or they were all kinds of other people who were not part of families. So the South in America has always been behind more reactionary, both in child rearing and in the uh, military, uh, than the North, uh, than the Northeast. And you see this, of course, with the, um, the the obsession with guns and hunting and the drinking and 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 substance abuse and machismo and a swaggering. Uh, yeah, it is. There's a it's a strong argument to be made that the, it came from. Yes, you say fragmented families and from a much more primitive area within England and some parts of Europe. Uh, a, a sort of previous psycho class. They all went down into the south, as you would expect from an agricultural. Uh, economic sector is going to be more primitive than an industrial one, and that has taken such a long time to to work itself out, and still remains very primitive. That's the root of religiosity. That's the root of reactionary republicanism and the Tea Parties and so on. And it is, yeah, if you don't understand the degree to which these these histories of childhoods are, are playing out in the modern world, it, it really does look like a random jigsaw puzzle just being assembled and torn apart and, assembled <laughs> and torn apart over and over again until you see the patterns of childhoods and their imprint on current events. Uh, and I think that's one thing that the psychohistory uh, movement is, is so powerful and good at and has really helped me to understand uh, the modern world in such a great way. And, um, it, and I really did want to you know, thank you for putting all of this amazing work out for free at psychohistory.com. Uh, uh, I've been getting very good feedback, uh, uh, although people find it quite appalling, the amount of <laughs> yes. in history that is underreported or in fact not reported. Is there anything you think that people can do to help this uh, movement, which I think is so essential? I and mean, we're either going to have self-knowledge or we're going to have war. Uh, it is those, those are the only two forks in the road for humanity as a whole. Is there anything you think that people can do to, to help spread the word, to help move this, uh, uh, this knowledge further out into a pretty resistant society? In the upcoming issue of the Journal of Psychohistory, which will be published on psychohistory.com, and they can read it, is my final chapter of my war book. And essentially, it's about two things. There's two major ways to avoid war in the future. The first is to improve child-rearing, and I give all kinds of places, including uh, India and China and God knows other, other places when China stopped the foot binding and so on, uh, and uh, all around America, uh, of uh, places that show how you can improve child-rearing and how you can give help to mothers and so on. And uh, I quote probably uh, 200 different sources to that thing. So uh, improving child-rearing is, is around the world is certainly terribly important. And the second part of the, of the uh, final chapter is uh, uh, about what I call peace counselors. In other words, all the stuff that we've learned in psychohistory and all the stuff that psychoanalysis has learned uh, over, uh, since Freud first started it and then since uh, Eric Fromm started the, the, the study of, uh, of national child-rearing styles, uh, all of those uh, um, uh, essentially are able to feed into a new profession, which I think should be a de separate department at each university and even in the, at local uh, high schools and so on, on peace counseling. That is to say, uh, peace counselors uh, go in to a place, uh, let's say that they're trained in, uh, in uh, dissociated, uh, repressed feelings of marital partner, partners, okay? They're marriage counselors. Uh, they're used to getting two people in who are ready to kill each other and have been throwing knives at each other for the past two months, right? Uh, if you're a marriage counselor, uh, so you get person who's trained in that, and they come in and they walk in to a uh, a peace session, 
before as as nations are going to war and they may not even talk to the top leaders by a long shot they may get together with this has been done in several countries especially in uh, uh, in Russia by men named Volkan uh, and uh, even uh, has been done in uh, in uh, Palestine and Israel uh, you get the people who are professionals they're lawyers they're doctors and they're doing things uh, uh, that are leading toward war, and you start talking to them, and you start showing them all kinds of interesting things. And I have about 20 different techniques. For instance, show them pictures. If you're a, uh, a Palestinian, show both the Palestinians who are there and the uh, the uh, Israelis pictures of babies being killed on the battlefield. And what do you feel? What do you think? What goes through your mind? And by the way, you're not going in there to negotiate any kind of a peace. You're a counselor, and you go in there without any threats, without any promises, without anything except what a, what a uh, normal psychotherapist would have or, or uh, a marriage counselor would have. And you start getting them to almost act out and live out the kinds of things, and you become the person who is causing all of their troubles, and they project stuff into you, and you show them that they're projecting, and all sorts of other uh, of, of methods that uh, come from both psychohistory and uh, marriage counseling and other kinds of, uh, of, uh, of things. And then slowly, more and more people come. You have, them, you have uh, meetings, uh, say, two, three weeks at a time, and no one ever publishes any word of that. There's, it's all quite secret. And uh, they go back to their uh, their nations, and they say, God, you know, it's possible that uh, when we attack uh, Hamas, uh, we're, we're, we're being self-destructive. We want them to come back and attack us. We're looking for that. And uh, their friends say, oh, it couldn't be. Let me go to the next one and see if that's true. And peace counseling, it seems to me, is a way to stop all the wars that are going to be and all the violence that's going to be uh, uh, take place until such time as all of the child rearing is improved around the world. Right. Well, I think that is a beautiful, beautiful hope, and I hope that it's more than a hope. And uh, I really do want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm going to make sure that people go to psychohistory.com and repeat your offer that you uh, will send out a free copy of the journal sure. Psychohistory, which I consider pretty essential reading for understanding do. the world. And thank you so much for the thank work you, that you're Stephen. doing. It is, it is really inspirational. Okay, good. Bye. Take care.